You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. As we continue to adore him, if you would turn your Bible to John chapter nine, we're back in the gospel of John. Thank you, Adam, orchestra, and choir for being the means by which we behold our God through song. Just a brief reminder, we have a mission team in the Middle East doing some critical ministry, and so please be in prayer for them. So far, we've heard great and encouraging news And so continue to pray for them. And it's a quick trip, but it's a very strategic trip. Um, As we continue to pray that song, uh, He shall reign forever, let your glory be over all the earth. Of course, we know His reign, His sovereign reign is already filling the earth, every nook and cranny. But one day it's going to be a saving reign. Uh, and it's going to be a glory that's manifested through His saving grace and mercy. But that comes through the Great Commission. And so we are doing that, but we need to pray for our labors as well. Well, we're in John chapter 9, almost said Luke. And it's been a while, the end of November. And so for context, John chapter 8, Jesus is in this heated conversation with the Jewish leaders who want to kill him. They've wanted to kill him since John chapter 5. And in verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, this tells us how the Old Testament saints We're saved. They're saved just like you and I, by grace alone, through faith alone, and in their case, in the coming Christ alone. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Amen. Amen. But they didn't say amen. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That's our context for our passage. Let's pray. Father, we have a, a story here. That should minister to us all in some way. A true story from the inerrant gospel of John. Each one of us have needs and each one of us are in different places. We pray that you'd meet each one of us in our particular places with our particular needs and struggles by the grace, the tailor-made grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of his word. And we ask this for his sake. Amen. One of the things that Adam and I share in common is our love for the great hymn writer, Fanny Crosby. 
course, many of you know that she lived most of her life blind. At six weeks old, she had been born healthy, her eyes in good shape, but at six weeks old, she developed a, a cold, some kind of sickness. Many say it's a cold in her eyes. And the community doctor was out of town. And so there was a stranger. She called him a stranger later in life. They didn't know who he was, but he claimed to be a doctor. And so he treated her eyes, which were inflamed, with a hot mustard poultice, hoping to draw out the inflammation. Well, it did draw out the inflammation, but it led her to be blind for the rest of her life. Now, what many people don't realize about Fanny Crosby is that she was not converted until she was 31 years old at a revival. And like me, she was saved in the, the middle of a song, in the singing of a song. In her case, Isaac Watts, alas, and did my Savior bleed. Uh, she said when she was converted, her darkened soul was flooded by the light of Christ. The light of Christ came to bear on her darkened soul at 31 years old. What else is surprising is that even though she would go on to write somewhere between eight to 9,000 hymns, the numbers vary. It doesn't matter once you've written 8,000 hymns. Get this, she did not write her first hymn until she was 44 years old. So if you're turning 44 this year, be of good cheer. You may have a bright future. But hymnist William Bradbury, now you may not know that name unless you're a, some kind of hymn scholar, but you know some of his songs. He wrote the tunes to this, this song called Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. He wrote the tunes to another song you might know, Just As I Am. He also wrote the tunes to He Leadeth Me, Sweet Hour of Prayer, my hope, is, my hope is built on nothing less. That man. He told Fanny, and they got to know each other. Remarkable providence here. He said, Fanny, I thank God we have met, for I think you can write hymns. So this is the man who encouraged Fanny Crosby at the age of 44, who was already a wordsmith. She was a poet. He encouraged her to write hymns, and he even gave her the subject matter for her first hymn, Heaven. So she wrote this song called Bright Home Above on February the 5th, 1864. She would go on to write songs like, He Hideth My Soul in the Cleft of the Rock. To God be the glory. You might know that song. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Rescue the perishing. We could go on. But it all started with that first hymn, 159 years ago today. The remarkable thing about her, among many things, is that in her autobiography, she said, 
if God came to her and said, I will restore your sight fully today, she would turn him down. Because she said, were it not for her physical blindness, she is convinced she would not have memorized most of the Bible. Do you realize that at one time, this woman was memorizing five chapters of the Bible today, a, a week rather, five chapters of the Bible a week. By the time she was 15, she had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And she would go on to memorize most of the Bible. She said, if I had been distracted by physical sight, I would not have been able to memorize those books of the Bible. Man, what a word for us all. Not only that, she said, I would not have written the thousands of hymns that I wrote. In other words, though physical blindness was surely a deep affliction for her, she learned that God had glorious purposes for it. In this broken world, many image bearers are born with or develop physical or mental afflictions and disabilities. Our passage is intended, among other things, we're only going to get through a few verses of it this week, but our passage is intended, among other things, to show us that our Lord Jesus Christ is very aware of our afflictions, and he cares about them. Because even the most physically or mentally disabled image bearer has the equal status and dignity and worth of the most healthy image bearers. And even though we may never learn in this life the purpose of those afflictions, sometimes we do, he has purpose for them, and that should give us hope. Chapter 9 begins a new section uh, in the Gospel of John. Since chapter 5, Jesus has had his life under threat. It began when he healed the man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. He healed him on the Sabbath. It wasn't that there was a one in seven chance that Jesus would heal the man on the Sabbath. Jesus intended to heal the man on the Sabbath because the Jewish leaders had lost sight of the purpose of the Sabbath. And so he healed this man on the Sabbath to demonstrate the purpose of the Sabbath, to point to the rest, the shalom, the new creation that he would usher in by his person and his work. But at that moment, he came under the threat of death. And now... He's about to begin his ministry. He's just a little less than six months out from the cross. And now in this phase of ministry, he is going to focus on those who are going to believe in him. That's the purpose of the gospel. And that brings us to the first part of John chapter 9. We're just going to look at the first five verses today, even though the whole chapter is one story. And what we see in the very beginning of this chapter is a picture 
of every sinner's plight. A picture of every sinner's plight. Look with me in verse 1. As he passed by, now keep in mind, they picked up stones to throw at him, chapter 8, verse 59. That chapter division was not put there by John. It was added later. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So he's been, he's been cast out of the temple. They're trying to kill him. He came to die, but his time has not yet come. It will come in the fullness of time at the Feast of Passover as the Passover lamb. This is the Feast of Tabernacle. And so he's been in the temple throughout chapters 7 and 8 for the Feast of Tabernacle. And now he's hiding himself and he passes by and he sees a man blind from birth. Now, I love that. It appears there's been a setback in Jesus' ministry. These men want to kill him. And so uh, he, he has to leave the temple Yet nothing is a setback to our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remember that. He encounters a man. He saw a man. A man who was blind from birth. And, and, and physical affliction indeed is grievous. Because that's not the way God created things to be. There was a fall. And yet we also know from places like Isaiah 6 that in the Bible, when, we, when a person is described with physical blindness, as grievous as that is, it's also a parable of every human's predicament. Every sinful human's predicament. We are born spiritually blind. In fact, there's a lot of things here to suggest parallels between this man's physical state and our spiritual state. First of all, uh, he's outside the temple. Uh, people of that day who were blind were, were treated as outcasts. And so he's outside the temple. In other words, the temple was where God's manifest presence was revealed. It's where God communed with his people. And he is outside the temple. This is our natural condition. We are alienated from God. We are alienated from him because of two reasons. Our rebellion. We do not naturally love God. Uh, the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. But he is alienated from us because of his holy and good and righteous wrath on our sin. And so we are alienated from the presence of God just as this man was as he was outside the temple. Secondly, he was blind from birth. This is the only one uh, in the scriptures that says he was blind from birth. In other words, he was unable to see. Spiritually speaking, he was unable to see the Savior, and that was his condition from birth. Psalm 58 verse 3 says, the wicked, who are the wicked? You and I. And the wicked is not a special class of sinner. The wicked are those who are born in guilt and rebellion. The wicked are estranged from the womb. You don't become a sinner when you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. They go astray from birth. Let every parent say amen. Third, he was helpless. He was hopeless. He was a beggar. His condition could not be fixed. 
unless the Son of God intervened. And so there's a lot of parallels between this man's physical affliction and what is true universally of our spiritual condition. But unfortunately, those issues weren't even in the disciples' thoughts. There was no sense of compassion, just questions on the part of the disciples. Verse 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Now listen, when we read this, it's not given to us for the purposes of us judging the, the disciples. It's given to us as a mirror. This is us. Lack of compassion, lack of mercy, just questions. Questions that arise from our self-righteousness. And so they ask this question. Now, in a world that has largely uh, embraced, that is the Western world, um, the randomness of evolutionary theory, and it's a, it's a theory at best, um, but evolution is based on just blind randomness. This question that the disciples ask not only is nonsensical, it's irrational. Uh, that question can only be made sense of in a worldview where there is a God who stands over us, but who has come to us. A God who is transcendent, he's great, but he's imminent, he's good. He's a cre our creator God. Um, that's the worldview uh, behind their question. Now, in one sense, their instinct, these disciples, their instinct was right. And here's what I mean by that. There were no afflictions no pain, no suffering, no disabilities until sin entered the world. According to Scripture, physical afflictions, all physical, physical afflictions can be traced back to sin. But that needs a major qualification. These men needed a major qualification. Because according to the Bible, it's not as simple as the question they ask. In Scripture, one's own personal sins can certainly um, cause personal affliction. John chapter 5, the man uh, who was a paralytic, it appears that he had become a paralytic because of his own sin. That's why Jesus said to him, sin no more, lest much worse happen to you. And so we saw that in John chapter 5, that it appears that this man who had been uh, a, a paralytic for, for some four decades had brought this on himself. So there are cases of that in the Bible. Secondly, other people's sins can cause afflictions and disability. Uh, for instance, if you read the prophets, I mean, this morning I was reading Jeremiah and time and time again, they throw Jeremiah in the mud. That's what I read this morning. But it got worse than that. They beat him. They imprisoned him. They, they sought to kill him. 
Uh, many of the prophets were, were, were beat and many of them were martyred. How about the cross uh, where the only good man died, was put to death at the hands of wicked and sinful men? Joseph and his brothers is another case. Because of their sin, he experienced deep affliction. Uh, the Bible also says that the sins of parents can lead to one's afflictions. Now, let me just preface this by saying it's not the curse that comes on a child because of a, of a parent. But let's say, for instance, um, in this case, uh, let's say a pregnant mom uh, does something like take drugs or alcohol while she's with child, that can lead to a child being born with a physical uh, issue. Or let's say this woman was abused by her husband or someone else, and the baby is harmed in the womb. So sometimes it can be the sins of parents, but more times than not, we have to concede at the end of the day, it's the sin of Adam that's behind the physical affliction. Because in Adam and his sin, who was our federal head, by the way, sin and brokenness and sadness and tears and death entered the world. Now, the Jewish rabbis generally believed in a direct cause and effect relationship. That's why um, the disciples had been influenced in this way. So the idea was, if you're suffering, you, you must have sinned or someone close to you must have sinned. In fact, many of them believed that infants could, could actually commit prenatal sin, and as a result, they could be born with physical uh, struggles and issues. Of course, that's nonsense. All of us indeed are born as sinners, but um, no one is born with physical afflictions because they sinned in their mother's womb. But some believe that of that day. Well, in this particular case, as they ask this question, Jesus makes it very clear uh, in verse 3. It was not this man who sinned or his parents in this particular case, um, as in most cases, I would say, if a cause must be asserted, and Jesus wasn't even interested in answering that question, the cause was Adam as the culprit. In other words, there was no direct link between this man's physical blindness and his particular sins or his family's sins. Now, in discussions like this, um, philosophers and, and theologians make a distinction between moral and natural evil. I think it's important for us to understand this. M what is moral evil? Moral evil is anything that violates God's law caused by an intentional action or an intentional inaction of personal beings with moral capacity. 
So that's, that's moral evil. And so when I, when I sin, I, I'm committing a moral evil. Sometimes that moral evil can have greater consequences than other times. But when I sin and I break God's law, that's moral evil. And so let's go back to Fanny Crosby. They don't exactly know who this man was who, who pretended to be a doctor, uh, but they think that that's really what it was. He wasn't a credentialed doctor. He wasn't a trained doctor, and yet he acted like a doctor. And so he, he performed a malpractice on baby Fanny Crosby, and it led to her blindness. In that particular case, if this man was not credentialed, that's moral evil. Or... In the case of this man, maybe an infection occurred while his mother was carrying him, and behind and in that infection, it led to the child being born blind. This would be what is known as natural evil, um, which is an adverse situation that does not proceed from a specific moral. Uh, action or choice from human beings, but it causes pain and suffering nonetheless. That's natural evil. It's life in a broken world. Now, natural evil can fall into several categories. Let me just give you these categories. Natural disasters. That's natural evil. Sometimes a hurricane will hit a particular city and you hear, you hear one of these... Uh, uh, TV preachers say, well, the reason that happened was because of the sins of that city. That's nonsense. There were Christians in that city as well. Um, that's natural evil. Uh, I've been to Haiti several times, and in 2010, a devastating earthquake hit, hit Haiti, and over 300,000 image bearers were killed. Natural evil. Um, Heather and I were in the Bahamas in this particular island called Spanish Wells, in 1992, the Category 5 Hurricane Andrew, the eye went over this island at top speeds. The Navy uh, came by, flew over after the hurricane hit, and reported no evidence of life left on the island. That's how devastating it was. There was life on the island, they had, but there was no evidence of it that, because the hurricane had been so devastating. Or the 2004 tsunami that hit uh, on the Indian Ocean. 14 countries, over 200,000 image bearers were killed by the tsunami. That's natural evil. Tornadoes, hurricanes, drought, natural evil. The second form of natural evil are accidents. Accidents. Now, if the accident is a result of someone's moral choices... That's moral evil, but there are, there are accidents that occur. We had a, a, a precious family in our church in Louisville where the man ran over his six-year-old son on a tractor. No one was at fault. There was no negligence. That's natural evil. That's, that's an accident that occurred. Another kind of natural evil is illness or disease. Now, you can bring on illness because of poor choices. That would be moral evil. But COVID, my mom lost her life to COVID, and it was not because of any sinful choices on her part. Natural evil. And then physical or mental disabilities by no fault 
of any particular person or family. That's natural evil. This is where this man is. He was born blind by no fault of any particular person. His blindness is due to evil. But it's not moral evil, it's natural evil. But even with that, we see that there is purpose behind the evil. Of course, even natural evil is ultimately a consequence of moral evil. Sin entering the world by our federal head, Adam. We live in a world cursed by the disobedience of our first parents. And you say, oh, I wish I had been there instead of Adam. No, you'd have made the same choice he did. But our world is cursed. But here's what this, cur- this cursed world preaches to us. And this is the grace in having a cursed world, a broken world. The world preaches, you need Jesus. That's what it preaches. The fallenness of this world preaches, you need the Son of God. And that brings us to the second part of this passage, a proclamation of the sinner's hope. We have seen a picture of the sinner's plight, and beginning in verses 3 and following, we see a proclamation of the sinner's hope. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents. The disciples here are acting like Job's friends who are incidentally to be indicted as we read the book of Job. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus' thought here, his word here, is that even evil, natural evil in this case, ultimately contributes to the greater glory of God. Now, this may not satisfy every question that you have about the problem of evil. It doesn't. Job asked God 16 times why. And God answered Job's 16 questions why with 70 questions back to Job. We're not going to have all the answers to these kind of questions. But what it does do is that it sheds hopeful light on the problem of suffering. And that's what we need is hope. God, in his mysterious counsels, has his wise purposes for permitting disability. My brother Anthony Brown this week sent me a link to a message that providentially was spoken here at Lakeview 10 years ago this month at the Nearest Heart Banquet. We saw uh, the Nearest Heart Banquet publicized. Let me encourage you, um, as we saw on the screen, uh, that banquet that night is intended to, to offer respite and encouragement for the caregivers of those who struggle with disability. These caregivers who are on the front lines every day 
They need a respite. They need encouragement so they can get back into the battle. And they need help. And so I'm going to, in my pastor's pen this week, if you didn't get that address, you, you can go online and, and sign up as a volunteer for that banquet, February the 24th. It is a very important banquet because these caregivers need encouragement to persevere, okay? And, and, and so there's ways we can help. But the, the, the link that Anthony sent was from a speaker 10 years ago named John Knight, who is the Director of Development for Desiring God Ministries. John and his wife, Diane, have four children. And on July the 4th, 1995, they had their firstborn son, whose name is Paul. They learned quickly that Paul was born blind, autistic, cognitively impaired. They learned in time that he had epilepsy, eating and sleeping disorders, and he would develop orthopedic issues. And Knight said, I love this vulnerability, his initial reaction to his son's condition was this. God was still real, but he was not good, not kind, not purposeful, not merciful, not fair. He was capricious. He was cruel. He was not to be trusted or believed. So I ended my association with my church and my small group and my Sunday school and took my little family away from the church. Incidentally, that right itself reminds us why the nearest heart banquet is so important. Sign up if you haven't. I stopped reading the Bible and listening to sermons and praying. I had every intention of taking care of my son and being a responsible husband, but my life was basically over. I interpreted everything through the lens of me, and God had come up lacking. God, however, was both not impressed and not phased by any of this. I didn't have a category for God being good and my son being disabled. But also, didn't really have a category for me being that sinful and Jesus being for me until Jesus showed me that I was that sinful and he was for me. For a season, though, I thought my son was a curse. But through the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he, he mused on the reality that in spite of his sin, Jesus Christ died the cursed death of the cross instead of John. Through the gospel and passages like John 9, where he saw there is purpose even in the affliction that something greater might be displayed, John was able, John Knight was able to say, now I live in the reality that God used my son to reveal the depths of my own depravity, my desperate need for a savior, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the daily help he provides, and the desire to make him known so others can experience this life of as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. In doing so, 
He helped me see my son's disabilities are not a curse, but an incredible blessing. Because at the end of every day, and because of that boy, I have been given more of God. My wife has been given more of God. My other children understand God more accurately. My church is a different place because God is at the center in making Paul, that is his son, the way he did. And so the hope for the afflicted is not that we expect a physical miracle. A miracle is going to be performed. We're going to see this next time. That's not the hope being communicated because these miracles point beyond themselves to something greater than the miracle itself. But the hope is that God has a wise yet often hidden purpose to be served by the affliction. And that may be manifested at once. It may be manifested in time. I mean, how many years passed before John came to realize that? How many years passed before this blind man came to realize this? And so there's hope in verse 3. But there's also hope in verses 4 and 5. Look with me in verse 4. We'll move through this quickly. Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. So here, Jesus has been sent, and the reason he has been sent is to work, to do a work, work the works of him who sent me. 17 times in John, it says God sent the Son. Now that's going to come into play next week. We'll see that. But the reason he sent the Son was for the Son to come to do the works of the Father. And this is our hope. This is our encouragement because that work is ultimately going to reverse the curse on this world. As John, the one who wrote this, will later say in Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. But more specifically here, Jesus' statement in verse 4 is referring to what he's about to do. He's about to heal this blind man. And this healing will be a sign miracle pointing to ultimately what he will do through his cross, his resurrection, and his return in glory. It's also referring to what he's going to do in a short time. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then ultimately, what he will do at the cross that's six months out. Of course, that's not to say that Jesus wouldn't be at work after the cross. There's an urgency here in verse 4 about doing the works because night is coming, night referring to the cross. That's not to say that he won't work after the cross. He will be at work after the cross by the Holy Spirit through his people. That's why we go on mission. That's why Paul says... Redeem the time, for the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16. But again, in the context, the most directed application are the works that he's going to perform before the cross that are going to be written down 
for our posterity, for our spiritual benefit. We see this more in verse 5. We'll move fast. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Of course, Jesus, once he's raised from the dead and he's exalted to the right hand of the Father, um, he will still be the light of the world by the Holy Spirit and the gospel. But this again is referring to the works before the cross, like healing the blind man and, and raising Lazarus, that's going to be preserved in the scriptures. So in this particular case, he's going to perform his sixth sign miracle. Again, we'll look at this next week. Um, he's going to give sight to the blind, and we're going to learn next week, this is, the, this is the oft, his most often performed miracle. Giving sight to the blind. That should tell us something. Why is that important? Here's why it's important as we close. Every moral issue we face, every moral issue we face is due to darkness that needs the light of Christ. Every moral issue. I'm not saying natural issue. There are natural evils we face. We made that distinction. But every moral issue... In your, in your personal life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your workplace, in the church, out in the world, every moral situation we face is due to darkness that needs the light of Christ. And that's why John is writing this. He is writing, as John 20 says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so he handpicks seven sign miracles, all of them pointing beyond themselves to what he is going to do to enlighten our naturally blind eyes to his glory to the glory of God and the glory of his person and work so that you may believe. Now you say, I already believe. Well, if you already believe, praise God, but so that you will believe even more. Or in keeping with our hymn motif for the day, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or, Jesus, Jesus, Precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more so that we might believe even more. And that's what the light does, the light of Christ. It progressively enlightens our naturally darkened eyes. Or maybe you're here today and you realize, I've heard about Jesus. I've been taught about Jesus all my life, but I don't see him as the light of the world. I don't see him as necessary. I don't see him as Savior and Lord. Here's what I want you to do in this case. I want you to be like another blind man in the Bible who was healed, a man named Bartimaeus, who said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, let me recover my sight. And you know what Jesus did in response to that cry? Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. 
So as Adam and the musicians come forward, I want to make that appeal to those of you that don't see Jesus as the light of the world. You can. Because blind men in the Bible could. And they cried out for mercy. And Jesus recovered their sight. You need your spiritual eyes enlightened by the light of Christ. Won't you respond to that today? Why don't you cry out, God, show me. Jesus, crucified, raised from the grave. Show me Jesus as Lord and Savior. He will. And you respond to that by repenting of your sins and trusting in Him. We would love for you to respond. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.